Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a housing crisis in New Jersey. Legislators unveil a new bill to overhaul the affordable housing system and finally meet the need for affordable homes. And we have a piece of uh, legislation that, uh, in our estimation, moves the needle. Plus, four years after the start of the COVID pandemic, the long overdue report looking at Governor Murphy's response to the crisis is finally in the works. But the process continues and now it looks like we'll have a report uh, by March of next year. Also combating hate, taking on social media companies' handling of the Israel-Hamas war and the rise in hate speech online. They were relying on all of us to police rather than doing it themselves. Um, and I think that that's totally irresponsible. And second chances. Union County holds a free clinic helping residents get their criminal records expunged. Doors will open that have been closed. Uh, opportunities will be back on the table. Just better future to provide for my children and myself. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday night. I'm Joanna Gagas in for Brianna Venozzi. Legislators in New Jersey are taking up dozens of bills in this final stretch of the legislative session, and one of them takes on COA, the Council on Affordable Housing. The now dormant agency was first created to help the state meet the court requirements for the number of affordable housing units built in each city and municipality in the state, but this bill would abolish COA and create a new system that advocates say cuts the red tape that's plagued the state's progress in building housing that residents can actually afford. Senior political correspondent David Cruz has more on what these changes could really mean. It's certainly not something we're going to solve in lame duck. It's not as simple as that, that's for sure. A lot can happen in a month in Trenton. Senate President Nick Scutari didn't think much about the chances of an affordable housing overhaul. Yet, with just days to go before the end of the lame duck session, Scutari and Speaker Coughlin announced just that, a bill to streamline the process of creating affordable housing in towns and cities who have fought mandates from the Council on Affordable Housing in court, resulting in huge affordable housing deficits across the state. This bill will put together a mechanism that's functional. Uh, the Council on Affordable Housing uh, was challenged, didn't seem to work. The courts have now been leading this effort, uh, and I think we're looking to marry those efforts into a uh, into a process that's going to work better for all those involved, municipalities, builders, and most importantly, the people that need places to live. The bill unveiled this week puts the ineffectual Council on Affordable Housing out of its misery and moves some regulatory powers to the Department of Community Affairs and the New Jersey Housing and Mortgage Finance Agency. But the courts will still be in the mix, appointing special masters to determine affordable housing needs around the state. Senator Troy Singleton is the bill's sponsor. While we are still roughly 200,000 units short of the needed number of affordable uh, housing units, the state has doubled our supply in the last eight years, going from under 50,000 affordable units to nearly 100,000 units statewide. 
Clearly, the need remains high. The suddenly on the fast track bill got its first hearing before Assembly sponsor Yvonne Lopez's housing committee, where advocates lined up to show their support and local officials urged caution. I'll be candid as an advocate, I was becoming impatient. Right. I didn't know if this day was actually going to come to fruition, but here we are. You, uh, you, you kept true to your word. And we have a piece of uh, a legislation that, uh, in our estimation, moves the needle. We think that it will provide us with the opportunity to continue to see affordable housing grow here in the state of New Jersey. But some municipalities and a lot of people involved in the litigation that has come with this issue expressed concern over the speed with which the legislation appeared to be moving. Why the rush, they asked. Jeff Serenium's law firm represents municipalities across the state. You indicated in your opening remarks that municipalities are essential partners. I agree. But we need more time. We just saw this legislation for the first time less than 24 hours before this meeting. We need more time. There are things that we can say that We'd, we'd like the opportunity for you to consider. It's not clear what took this oft-argued, tough nut to crack of a bill from back burner to top priority. But with about two weeks left in the session, a new affordable housing reality could be the most impactful bill to come out of this lame duck session. And who'd have thought that a month ago? I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. New Jersey quickly became the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. with cases surging here in March of 2020. It didn't take long, though, for the spotlight to turn to the Murphy administration's response to the viral outbreak, and the criticism soon started, prompting calls for an investigation, which Governor Murphy himself promised to launch immediately. Well, nearly four years later, no such report has materialized, although the process has begun. Healthcare writer Lilo Stainton recently took a look at the latest on that investigation, and she's here with us now to explain it. So Lilo, great to talk to you as always. The process of this investigation has begun, although it's been a lot slower than people expected or hoped. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, uh, Governor Murphy announced um, sort of late last year, it was November of 22, when he said they would start this process um, and remind, to keep in mind that everybody, this is something he has been talking about since very early in the pandemic, like March or April of 2020, right? So um, it's it's been something that everybody kept asking, where is this, where is this? Just started last year. Um, it appears from the contracts that, you know, um, at least the, the attorney, Paul Zubek, was up and working right away in November. It took a little longer to get the contract signed for the, the Boston Consulting Group, but, um, you know, I was told that they were doing work all along, and, but, the, but the process continues, and now it looks like we'll have a report uh, by March of next year. And you just referenced the attorney and, and the consulting group that's going to be collaborating with yep. the attorney on this investigation, right? Your reporting raised an interesting comparison of this report to the Chris Christie Bridgegate investigation right. where the state spent $8 million on that. And in the end, it cleared the governor, cleared right. then-governor Chris Christie. Is there skepticism around the outcome of this report, especially in light of that? Yes. I mean, I think there's tons of skepticism um, and not even because of that report, right? Just because of the fact that government investigating itself um, always raises eyebrows. 
Governor Murphy has really stressed that this is an independent review. It's outside. It's not, you know, not being done by the government. Um, and, you know, Mr. Zubek um, said that, you know, he's working on it on independently, so um, we can only take their word at it. Um, I think you know, as far as the comparison on the cost, I thought it was interesting in Chris Christie's case that the lawyer's blended rate was actually $650. In this case, the blended rate is 400 which when you talk about high-priced lawyers, that's actually kind of a good deal. So, you know, there is that. So yeah, the, it, I guess the expected cost is three point seven million. For that's what this. they've spent so far. So um, and I, you know, they're I did some quick math. I mean, you know, if you do some averaging, it's a lot of hours of work already. Um, but I, my understanding is they have more to do. Um, you know, public health people, for example, in local public health people were saying that they hadn't really been contacted. My understanding is now they have been contacted and they're going to have a meeting with Mr. Zubek in, in January. So, you know, they have plenty more people to still interview. Just looking at that cost a bit further, is this something that's actually going to be added to the state budget? Is this going through appropriations? How is this being handled in terms of overall cost? Great question, um, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, none of this cost was sort of planned for. There was no, you know, there was no public RFP process or review process. I'm pretty sure as an emergency they didn't have to. Um, so it, that's a big TBD. We just don't know. When we look at the timing of this, right, mm. it was delayed. Um, several years really now and some might have speculated that that was because the governor wanted to get through maybe a legislative election now we see Tammy Murphy mm -hmm. up for the US Senate do you anticipate do you expect any delays of this report until maybe she's further along yeah I mean that's an interesting question um, I, I nobody's mentioned that to me um, but I do think you know her husband has been attacked by you know people on both both political parties and across the spectrum for you know the state's response to nursing homes and I you know that if, if there's bad news in the report it isn't necessarily good news for her campaign so you know we'll see yeah, could be. That's been one of the biggest points of criticism against her. Absolutely. Could end up being very damaging to her yeah. campaign. Yeah, exactly. Great insight as always. Lilo Stainton, thanks for being here. Thank you, Joanna. Israel says it's close to victory in northern Gaza. Military officials announcing they're on the verge of defeating the last remaining Hamas militants in their two largest strongholds in the north and discovering over 1,500 tunnels. Meanwhile, the Israeli government is negotiating for the release of 40 more hostages in what could be another week-long ceasefire. As the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is worsening, with reports coming out of people in the region starving, going days without food. Here in New Jersey, Congressman Frank Pallone held a roundtable with Jewish community leaders to discuss the failures of social media companies to regulate the hate speech and misinformation that's flooded their platforms since the start of the war. Ted Goldberg was there and has more on Pallone's calls for a clear action plan from these companies. Congressman Frank Pallone returned to the JCC of Middlesex County for a conversation with leaders in the Jewish community about anti-Semitic misinformation on social media. This comes two months after holding a news conference here to chastise social media companies for not enforcing their terms of service and allowing hate to spread. These social media platforms do purport that they will not allow that type of thing and that they have people on staff who will take it down or prevent it from being put up. And yet we found that that was simply not true. Last week, Pallone sent letters to Meta, TikTok, YouTube, and X, formerly known as Twitter, asking each site about how they moderate content. 
two months after representatives from each platform spoke with Pallone's Energy and Commerce Committee. We were not satisfied in any way. I mean, in other words, the concerns that we had about the lack of policing, if that's the word, the lack of people that were actually doing this, uh, the attention being paid to it was very meager. In particular, Pallone said X was very hands-off in keeping misinformation and hate from going viral. They basically said that they're, for, they're focusing on getting their users to act as unpaid content moderators. In other words, they were relying on all of us to police rather than doing it themselves. Um, and I think that that's totally irresponsible. Viral posts have shown violence from previous conflicts and said it was filmed in Israel, while artificial intelligence and video game footage have also been used to create fake videos of the war. It's so easy to just create a bunch of, you know, just an alternate reality. And as a society, I don't understand how we can live in, without a, some sense of shared reality. We know that a lot of this is being organized by our enemies, right? We know it's been organized by Iran, by Russia. They're looking to start with anti-Semitism and to see, okay, we can infiltrate, we can get these young people to believe this garbage and falsehoods. That's great. Now we know how we're going to infiltrate the rest of the country. Pallone admits that the First Amendment is a significant obstacle in regulating social media, and speakers say misinformation might prove an exception to the First Amendment's broad protections. The First Amendment is sacred, and yet our courts have found instances where it limits the First Amendment when national security is at risk. We all understand where the line gets crossed into hate. I, I, I'm not sure that that's blurred any longer. So there's a big difference in my mind between someone going out into the street corner and just lying, if that's what they feel like they're doing, versus getting paid for it by a, 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 a large media company, which then also profits off of it. Speakers also blame social media sites for not doing enough to stop harassment, which has only gotten worse for Jewish and Palestinian users since October 7th teenagers are, at large are just struggling in this time right now um, because everyone around them is saying well you're lying or you're not right and you're, you're in the wrong. The news that they believe is fiction um, that's all coming from social media uh, it just makes me worry. She's not the only person worried as leaders and families try to avoid toxic content on social media with no easy answers in sight. In Edison, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. There are a staggering 46,000 unprocessed expungement orders in New Jersey. That means 46,000 people who should have charges against them removed from their records are still living with the limitations of a criminal record. And while legislation is moving forward to help rectify some of the issues around that, today the Union County Board of County Commissioners held a free expungement clinic in Roselle to help pair residents who are seeking expungement with attorneys who can help them. Melissa Rose Cooper has more on the expungement process and what it means for those impacted. I caught, I caught a, uh, a charge quite some years back. Not too proud of it. A past mistake, LeVar Parker says, has negatively impacted his life over the years. Especially from employment opportunities, business opportunities, uh, you know, kids getting older, being able to Google things, look things up. You know, it's a lot of things that you're not too proud of, but 
I could be proud of the future that's in front of me. So Parker is taking steps to reach his goal, joining more than 100 others who registered for this expungement clinic in Union County. It's the second one this year. Should they come here, talk to a lawyer who we have lawyers on site who are working with them throughout the whole entire process and not only work with them today, but throughout the whole entire process of expungement getting your record expunged, they still with them every step of the way, which is one of the great things. It's not like you just come here today, meet with a lawyer, and that's it. No, throughout the months that you actually are getting your record expunged, this lawyer will stay in contact with you and making sure they're guiding you through the whole entire process. County Commissioner Sergio Granado says the goal is to give residents a chance to achieve new opportunities that are often taken away from them, having committed low-level nonviolent crimes in the past. You know, one of our main focuses is believing in second chances, and this is a way that so many people can't get jobs, you know, can't move forward in certain career paths, you know, educational paths because of their record. And this is our way to hopefully make sure it's clean, dry and provide a new opportunity for them. People come here and they can ask questions too. You know, sometimes it's not only about getting your record expunged. We have lawyers here who are actually help guide you and provide you additional information that you might be beneficial to you for the future. So that's one of the great things about it too. The Union County Board of County Commissioners teaming up with consulting firm Blaze Responsibly to provide expungement services for free. It's an initiative that hits home for co-founder Akash Patel. We've had a lot of friends that have you know, dealt with the situation, family members, things of that nature. So being in law, we realized that it's $1,500 or $2,000 to get your record expunged. So we would tell our friends, go get your record expunged and then we'll help you get a job. But the problem is people just don't have the extra $1,500 to get it done. So they keep pushing it off, pushing it off. Like today, there's a gentleman here that uh, 45 years, he got his record 45 years ago and he just kept pushing it off, right? So our goal, our goal was let's find organizations that could team up with us and help us put these together and that we could actually do the groundwork and the footwork and get these expungements done. Lawmakers are also working to make sure residents get second chances, especially given the backlog of 46,000 expungements that still need to be processed by the state police. A bill sponsored by Assemblywoman Annette Kihano would prohibit state police from releasing someone's record during a background check after an expungement has been granted but not yet completed. That bill advanced out of the Assembly Judiciary Committee earlier this week. Doors will open that have been closed. Uh, opportunities will be back on the table. Just better future to provide for my children and myself. Parker says he wants to give back and help others like him in the future. The county plans on holding more expungement clinics in the coming year. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. A bill moved forward this week that would set a minimum age for juvenile delinquency in New Jersey at 14. Now that's the age the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child set in 2019 and subsequently urged all countries to adopt as their minimum age. New Jersey currently has no age minimum for juvenile delinquency, but a bill was introduced this year that adopts the 14-year-old minimum. It's had bipartisan support in the legislature, but it's not without controversy. I'm joined right now by Yannick Wood, who recently testified in support of the bill in Trenton. Yannick, great to have you with us tonight. Thanks for being here. I want to start with what can you tell us about why the United Nations Convention recently set the age of 14 for juvenile justice delinquency? Why that age? Well, that age is a recognition uh, of the very important uh, developments in uh, child psychology and brain science of the delayed development um, in uh, for youth, uh, when it comes to impulse control, when it comes to um, uh, decision making, and being able to appreciate the consequences of one's actions. I mean, we've all been, 
young people. We've all been youth. So we, we understand, you know, the, the mistakes that we've made in the past. And um, for, for the longest time, um, uh, uh, governments and, and, and um, different states have uh, been criminalizing youth conduct and misbehavior when now there's a greater recognition that that uh, youth misbehavior should just be treated simply as that misbehavior and not criminalized. Yeah, I was surprised to see that some states have the age of six or seven actually set for the age that a, a youth, a child, could be arrested for, for some kind of behavior. Um, but here in New Jersey, as this bill was considered, we heard some pushback from Republican lawmakers, including Senator Declan O'Scanlan and Assemblyman Brian Bergen, who say that they're concerned this law, passing this bill, could allow for gangs to encourage 13-year-olds or, or younger to commit violent acts or could possibly leave victims out of assistance funds and services. What do you say to that? Well, I, I have a few thoughts about that. Um, already as it is, um, there are already uh, mechanisms with which youth who have certain types of um, mental health issues or behavioral issues could be treated outside of the criminal context. So I think it's a, a, a mischaracterization to say that a youth needs to be prosecuted in order for them to actually um, stop that 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 uh, misbehavior for them to actually get that treatment. And they also have the option for out of home placements for those young people. So I think it's really important for uh, the viewers to know that if a young person does commit some sort of violent act, they're not just going to get away with it. They are going to be given the services, whether it be substance use, mental health services. If they can't be at home, there are out of home placements for them to protect uh, 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 the public, but also to protect that youth as well. We all know that youth are impressionable. Um, they uh, um, are, susceptible to social pressures and, yeah. and, and they shouldn't be criminalized for that. What can you tell us about the impact that making this change would have on racial disparities that exist right now in New Jersey's criminal justice system? Yes, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you, re you recognize the, uh, the racial disparities. Um, New Jersey, um, we are a very, um, we like to think of ourselves as a, as a very progressive state but we have the worst racial disparities in youth incarceration in the whole country, where a black youth is 28.6 times more likely to be incarcerated than a white youth. So how this um, bill, if it's signed, if it's passed, signed into law, how this will help um, alleviate that is it's not going to be sending um, young, the youngest people, elementary age um, uh, uh, young people into that type of system. So hopefully if we could prevent youth from entering into that system in the first place, then um, they could receive uh, the, the treatment that they need um, in their own communities and um, not enter into that justice system, uh, which ends up uh, resulting in recidivism and then aging out of that system into the adult incarceration and problems later on in life. Yannick Wood from New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. Great insight. Thank you. Thank you. In our spotlight on business report tonight, Google will pay $700 million to settle a lawsuit brought by New Jersey's Attorney General Matt Platkin and 52 other attorneys general in the U.S., claiming the tech giant engaged in anti-competitive conduct. Those charges connected to the Google Play Store, alleging that Google unlawfully monopolized the distribution of apps on Android phones, that it paid off app developers to stop them from creating rival app stores and created barriers for customers to download 
download apps outside of the Google Play Store. A total of $630 million will be paid in restitution to all customers who made purchases on the Google Play Store between August 2016 and September 2023. Now, there's no need to submit a claim. Those payments will be made automatically through PayPal, Venmo, check, or ACH transfer. Users will receive at least $2, though some may receive more based on their App Store spending. Turning to Wall Street, where the markets closed up for the 11th day straight. Here's a look at the closing numbers. Support for the Business Report, provided by Rowan University. Educating New Jersey leaders. Partnering with New Jersey businesses. Transforming New Jersey's future. Finally tonight, some sad news in the journalism community. A news helicopter crashed in New Jersey last night, killing the pilot and camera operator on board. The crew worked for six ABC News in Philadelphia and were on assignment flying over the Jersey Shore. The chopper crashed on its return flight after 8 p.m., landing in a heavily wooded section of the Wharton State Forest in Washington Township, which is in Burlington County. The cause of the crash is still being investigated. Six ABC News says the crew were veterans of their news team and have delayed releasing their names until all family members are notified. Our hearts go out to the families, colleagues, and loved ones of the two men who lost their lives. And that's going to do it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Joanna Gagas for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow night. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health, Let's be healthy together. Have some water. Look at these kids. How are you? What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton, and I'm proud to be an NJEA member.